Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. When I started college, it was with the intention of majoring in business administration. I'd been working at Blackburn's clothing store since high school, and Mr. Blackburn told me when I graduated from college, he'd give me a piece of the business and eventually let me buy him out. That's what I expected my life to be, a small businessman in Delaware, Ohio, a member of the Kiwanis Club, a Rotarian, a pillar of the community. It didn't quite work out that way. Second semester of my sophomore year at Ohio Wesleyan was literally make or break. It started out pretty much normal. There were some new faces at the SAE house. A new group of freshmen were now active members. We had a new guy join us as a social member, Jim Barry. He transferred from Dartmouth and ended up drawing a syndicated political cartoon, Barry's World, for 40 years. I was an active member of SAE now, too. I wasn't in rebellion anymore, but I really wasn't committed either. My only priority was to make my grades and stay in school and out of the Army. I still lived at home, which was challenging. The environment there was the same as it was when I flunked out. I tried to take courses that would guarantee I made my grades. One was a course called Hygiene, a university course, Hygiene. It was taught by one of the football coaches. I figured all I'd have to do is show up and keep my fingernails clean, and it'd be a lock. I took a phys ed course. My dog, Elmer, could have gotten a good grade in that one. There was at least one other course that I'd forgotten, but whatever it was, you can be sure that it was easy as. The one course I have a vivid recollection of was Econ 202. I had taken and passed Econ 201 already, with a C, but I passed. I needed Econ 202 for my business major, so I could own Blackburns and become a Rotarian. The end of the year came. Grades were posted outside the classroom on the door. I went to the gym to pick up my phys ed grade. I expected an A. I didn't get an A. Hmm. I went to the other course, the one I can't remember. I must have passed, probably with a C. I went to look at the hygiene grade. If all you did was look at my fingernails, you'd figure at least a B. The football coach gave me a D. Everything now depended on Econ 202. Your Econ 202 grade was determined by just three things. You had a midterm exam, you had to make an economic projection for that quarter, and you had a final exam. I flunked the midterm exam outright. On the economic projection, you either got a satisfactory or an unsatisfactory. I got an unsatisfactory. And the final exam was an objective test with about 100 questions. You had to have 70-something correct to pass. I didn't even answer 70 questions. I went to the econ building prepared for the worst. There was no way I was going to stay in school. I could already hear the drill sergeant counting cadence. I got to the classroom, and there was the bad news plastered on the door. The grades were listed alphabetically. I looked down for the W's. C-A-W had a C next to it. That must have been Cynthia Wagner. C-T-W, me, had a B. A B? How could I get a B? I hadn't done any of the work. It had to be a mistake. A B guaranteed that I made my grades. Just, but that's all I needed. It was impossible. I tiptoed out of that building like a thief. 
I was afraid Vance Kebker, the econ instructor, might see me and yell, Hey, wait a minute. I gave you that B by mistake. You flunked my class. I didn't breathe for the next two weeks, waiting for the official transcript to come out. When it did, I was afraid to open it. Finally, I got up the courage. The B in Econ 202 was there. It was official. Somebody had to have fucked up. There's no other explanation. I took that as a sign. Okay, business administration is out. What's plan B? When my junior year began in September, I started the journey... No, make that I continued the journey that I've always been on, whether I knew it or not, as what I've termed a creative resource. I'd say artist, but that always sounds too highfalutin to me. They had created a new major at Ohio Wesleyan, radio and television. Calling it radio and television was a stretch, and I mean stretch. The closest television station was miles away in Columbus. At Ohio Wesleyan, television had to be a figment of someone's imagination. Even the radio part barely made it under the wire. There was a small FM station with a signal so weak you couldn't hear it across the street. But the major was set up as liberal arts on steroids. The philosophy was, in order to have a career in broadcasting, the more you knew about a lot of stuff, the better. That suited me. I had to take two journalism courses. I had taken a required course as a freshman called Music Appreciation. I now had to take an advanced music course, so I picked Symphonic Literature. I can say without a moment to think about it that Symphonic Lit was the best course I ever took. It has had a lasting effect on the quality of my life. Another course in my major was a history of broadcasting kind of thing, with a little showbiz and gossip thrown in. It was taught by Stuart Postal. Gay wasn't a word we used in those days or alluded to, but Mr. Postal was the next best thing we had to a May Queen. Pedantic, charming, wickedly funny, and just off-color enough to get away with it. He and I had friendly combat on a regular basis. Because I was still living at home, I had access to a television set. Television was still a baby. I remember in high school going to Jim Coonert's house on a weekday afternoon and watching the static until the test pattern came on. We were glued to that test pattern like we were expecting it to do something. But by now, there were live dramas and documentaries and a lot of high culture being broadcast. It was the mid-50s. So Stuart Postal would say something in class about some show he'd seen the night before. Usually, I'd also seen it. When he said something I disagreed with, I'd say something. Nobody else could because nobody else watched TV. When I did that, he gave me a look. It was somewhere between, how dare you, and you little scamp. Another time, he said something about Robert Russell Bennett who orchestrated many of the big Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, like Carousel, The Sound of Music, and also Lerner and Lowe shows, including My Fair Lady. Little did I know or could I imagine that a few years later, when I worked at NBC doing on-air promotion, I'd often pop into Mr. Bennett's, or as he was known by his friends, Russ's office for tea. He was a sweet man and a lot of fun. Anyway, Postal said that Robert Russell Bennett's entire name was always spelled out professionally. I said, no, it wasn't. Postal gave me a look. The next class, I brought in an original Broadway cast album as proof. On the cover, it said, Orchestrations by Russell Bennett. No, Robert. My sister had been buying original cast albums for years, 
She took me to my first musical, Porgy and Bess, when I was 10. I knew my musicals. This time, Postal just smiled at me. Second semester of my junior year came. I began to branch out in other directions, too. I was no longer living at home. The SAEs were one of two fraternities to move into new houses built on university property. It used to be a woods that I played in whenever I visited Jack Hahn in high school. It was now all smoothed out and called Williams Drive. The SAEs and the Gams were the pioneers. Second semester of my junior year, I moved into the SAE house. It was like being away at college, and I loved it. Later that year, one of my high school buddies asked me if I'd be in a one-act play his girlfriend had to direct as a final exam for a theater course. They weren't allowed to use any of the known campus actors, which included Ron Liebman, who went on to Broadway and television fame. And while I'm on the subject, I already mentioned that the African-American film pioneer Melvin Van Peebles was at Ohio Wesley when I was, too. I'm telling you, it was a hot spot then. So I'd been in plays in high school and thought it was fun, but nothing to take seriously. The high school drama coach always tried to get me to do more, but it was during my rebellion year, so I said no. But when my buddy asked me to be in his girlfriend's play, I did it as a favor to him. It was virtually a one-man show about Judas Iscariot, wandering the world for eternity as penance for betraying Jesus. It was called Dust in the Road. That's as much as I remember about it. That poor girl must have been tearing her hair out. I couldn't remember the lines. Well, I didn't remember the lines because I never really learned them. I totally faked my way through that performance. Afterwards, the head of the drama department told her that she'd discovered the best character actor he'd ever seen. Me. She got an A. He tried for my entire senior year to entice me into productions. I thought he was nuts. Acting was too easy for me to waste my time on. Music became my thing. At the beginning of my senior year, I decided I wanted to audition for Ohio Wesleyan's a cappella choir. They had a terrific reputation and went on a big tour in the springtime. Rexford Keller was the choir master. And my audition, Sexy Rexy, as he was known behind his back, sat at the piano and asked me to sing Holy, 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 a hymn I knew well from all my church choir days. I automatically sang the bass line. I had a deep bass voice. He stopped me. He wanted me to sing the melody. I sang as he modulated upwards, then he stopped. Come to rehearsal next, whenever it was. The a cappella choir was one of the highlights of my senior year. It was filled with music majors. These people were a breed apart. The character Allison Hannigan played in the movie American Pie summed them all up when she talked about sticking her flute in her hoo-hoo at band camp. I'll get back to the a cappella choir in a minute, but there's something else I want to tell you about first. There was a brother at the SAE house who was a phenomenal, untaught pianist. Hal could literally hear a song on the radio go to the piano and transcribe it perfectly by ear, always in the key of C, with all the subtlety and orchestral flourishes of the original. There was a recording by Count Basie of April in Paris that was a huge hit. You can check it out on YouTube. Big band stuff. Hal played it like he was the whole band. That was just one instance. He did it all the time. After dinner, my regular routine was to go and stand by the piano while Hal played for at least an hour. He was also something of a ladies' man. 
He always had cute girlfriends. One that he was going out with for a while was, let's call her Emma. Emma was a sweet blonde. She and Hal made a great couple. However, there was another guy who had his eyes on Emma, Jack Rouse. Jack Rouse is a Sigma Chi, a football player, and a bit of a brawler. Hal was a stone pacifist. One night, Jack Rouse came to the SAE house. It wasn't a social call. He was out for Hal's blood. I was in my room when I heard a commotion in the hallway. When I went out, here was Jack Rouse straddling Hal, sitting on his chest with his fists cocked, ready to smash Hal's face. Hal couldn't have been calmer. He kept telling Jack that he'd regret this, not in a threatening way, but logically. He understood Jack's anger and insisted that it was up to Emma, who she wanted to be with, that kicking Hal's ass wouldn't accomplish anything. By then, a few other guys were adding their two cents worth and tried to talk Jack down. Eventually, he got up, red-faced, but no longer violent, and left. Fade out, fade in. After we left Ohio Wesleyan, Jack Rouse became the second of my classmates convicted of murder. He killed an elderly couple. If I remember correctly, it was with a screwdriver. He'd been close to these people all his life, but he killed them because they said something bad about his mother. Tell me Ohio Wesleyan wasn't special. Stuart Postal was no longer head of the radio and television department. The guy who replaced him looked like he should play right tackle for the Green Bay Packers. He was as gay as Postal, but not nearly as much fun, not by a mile. And I think he secretly wanted to be in the theater department. I say that because I remember one class where he was making us all do an acting exercise. It was like the one Priscilla Lopez sang about in a chorus line, where she had to be an ice cream cone. This one, you had to be on a sled riding down a snowbank. One of my classmates, Jill, rode on the make-believe sled first. It didn't look to me like she was doing anything, but whatever she did, she did with a slight smile on her face. The right tackle beamed and told her how wonderful it was, and he could feel the icy wind on her face and crap like that. When it was my turn on the sled, I didn't feel shit, didn't want to be there, and made no bones about the fact that I thought it was stupid. Right tackle didn't look at me like I was a naughty scamp. He was pissed. This set the tone for our relationship. Another class I was required to take for my new major was a writing course. Remember, this is at the dawn of the television era. The writing assignment was a radio script. If you think I was rebellious on the sled, you should have seen me on that radio script. It was supposed to be a half hour in length. You might have been able to squeeze 20 minutes out of mine if you were lucky. Right tackle flunked me. I couldn't graduate with a major in radio and television without that course. But fortunately for me, as if I hadn't already had more than my share of good luck, right tackle left mid-year and a woman became the head of the department. I retook the course and passed this time. Now, back to the a cappella choir. It's rare that something so mundane as singing in an a cappella choir can be life-changing. But that's what happened. Just like getting a B in Econ 202 had changed the trajectory of my college life, the a cappella choir changed the trajectory of the rest of my life. It wasn't singing in the barbershop quartet with three other guys in the choir. It wasn't playing the bongos with the choir when we were on tour. 
And it wasn't even the performance of César Franck's setting of the 150th Psalm, which ranks, by the way, as one of the most thrilling musical experiences I've ever had. In fact, i got to spend a minute on that. It was the final number of an end-of-the-year concert with the a cappella choir and the university orchestra. Sexy Rexy knew that I was a percussionist, hence the bongos on tour. So he asked me if I'd play the cymbals in the orchestra for the 150th Psalm. It doesn't sound like much, but it was spectacular. The piece ends with a huge bang, symbolized by the cymbals, if you'll excuse the pun. It felt to me like my cymbal crashes were what made that piece work. I gave it 100%. I smashed those suckers together, raised them in the air, and let them ring. It was so exciting that after the thunderous applause, and it was thunderous, Sexy Rexy turned to the audience and said, I have never done this before in my career, but we're going to repeat the 150th Psalm. And we did it all over again. It reached great heights, but couldn't come anywhere near the previous performance. And while I'm on the subject of thrilling musical experiences, I have to tell this story. It sort of relates. It was when I lived in New York. I was on my way to the east side terminal where I'd catch a bus to the airport. I was walking through Central Park. The New York Philharmonic was rehearsing for a free concert that night. The park was virtually empty. As I approached the apron of the stage, they were in the middle of pictures at an exhibition. I had to stay. Toward the end, if you don't know the work, it has a big finish, too. My chin was practically on the stage. That's how close I was. That music washed over me like a tidal wave. I could actually feel the music as well as hear it. Imagine if you were the conductor of that orchestra, with all those musicians playing as loud as they could and all aimed right at you. Imagine how that music would feel, let alone sound. I'd give anything for that. So Sexy Rexy must have felt that when we did the 150th Psalm. He wanted to experience it again. Makes perfect sense to me. But the life-changing event in the a cappella choir wasn't any of that. It was Nancy. She was an alto. She was a good Christian girl from Holland, Ohio. She wore glasses. She was a music major. She was beautiful. And she was my first love. I was a goner at the first choir rehearsal when I laid eyes on her. I could write a book about Nancy. If not for her, I would have been a pilot in the United States Air Force. In my imagination, looking back, since the timing was right and I was the right size, and had studied higher mathematics in high school, and had lightning reflexes, and better-than-average eyesight, I might have become an astronaut. And after that, who knows? Instead, I resigned my commission in the Air Force, decided to be a Christian minister, and ended up as a private in the Army. I've already told those stories in the season of these podcasts titled, You're in the Army Now. You can check them out if you're interested. Anyway, Nancy changed my life. Where I started out on this educational journey and where I ended up, well, just goes to show you how putting one foot in front of the other can take you to places you couldn't possibly imagine. It's called life. I'm Chris Wallace.